Hello, you are listening to the Secular Buddhism Podcast. This is episode number 46. I am your host, Noah Roshetta, and in this episode, I'm excited to share the audio of an interview I had with New York Times bestselling author Robert Wright about his newest book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. Last week, I had the opportunity to speak with and to interview Robert Wright. He's the New York Times bestselling author of The Evolution of God, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, Non-Zero, The Moral Animal, and Three Scientists and Their Gods, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. He has taught at the University of Pennsylvania and at Princeton, where he also created the popular online course, Buddhism and Modern Psychology. In 2009, Foreign Policy named him one of its top 100 global thinkers alongside Barack Obama, Bill Gates, and Anne-Marie Slaughter. He has written for a variety of publications, including The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Time, Slate, and The New Republic. This interview with Robert was the first interview I've done for the podcast, and I'm honored to have started out this new format of interviews with someone like him. I plan on doing roughly one interview episode per month while I continue to maintain the original format of the podcast, as well as adding the occasional question and answer format like last week's episode. And I want to quickly share the description of his book from the Amazon listing before I go right into the audio of the interview itself. So it says, From one of America's greatest minds, a journey through psychology, philosophy, and lots of meditation to show how Buddhism holds the key to moral clarity and enduring happiness. Robert Wright famously explained in The Moral Animal how evolution shaped the human brain. The mind is designed to often delude us, he argued, about ourselves and about the world, and it is designed to make happiness hard to sustain. But if we know our minds are rigged for anxiety, depression, anger, and greed, what do we do? Wright locates the answer in Buddhism, which figured out thousands of years ago what scientists are only now discovering. Buddhism holds that human suffering is a result of not seeing the world clearly, and proposes that seeing the world more clearly through meditation will make us better, happier people. In Why Buddhism is True, Wright leads readers on a journey through psychology, philosophy, and a great many silent retreats to show how and why meditation can serve as the foundation for a spiritual life in a secular age. At once excitingly ambitious and wittily accessible, this is the first book to combine evolutionary psychology with cutting-edge neuroscience to defend the radical claims at the heart of Buddhist philosophy. With bracing honesty and fierce wisdom, it will persuade you not just that Buddhism is true, which is to say a way out of our delusion, but that it can ultimately save us from ourselves as individuals and as a species. I really enjoyed this new book, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here's the audio of the interview. Great. Well, first of all, I do want to mention how excited I was to get to interview you after reading your book because I'd mentioned before I had heard about your course um, and, and and I had heard of some of your other books. I hadn't read any of them yet. And I'm always looking for um, a book that works as a foundational piece for people who are trying to learn a secular form of Buddhism, since that's really the, the area I'm, I'm, I'm most interested in. And when I read your book, I, I thought, oh, this is it. This is the book that I think would do a really good job of helping people to have a foundational understanding of some of these concepts in a way that speaks to the audience that listens to this podcast, you know, secular minded people. Um, so I was really excited about that first. Um, well, that's so- great to hear, especially coming from you because you really know the territory. Uh, and I did try to make the book accessible to people who don't have uh, specialized knowledge in the area. Great. Yeah, I think you did a great job with that. Um, I'm, a little, I'm curious about a few things. First of all, um, just a little bit of your history, how you got into uh, your field, how you got into writing in general, and why oh. this field? 
Well, as for writing, uh, I just, somebody put in my mind that I might try being a writer. I think my mother was the first person to suggest journalism, actually. Uh, and my first real journalism job was at a small newspaper. Uh, I then came to do more and more magazine-y stuff and a certain amount of kind of academic stuff for kind of quasi-academic publications. For a while, I, I took academic writing and edited it heavily, heavily to make it accessible to a lay audience I, at a magazine called The Sciences, which no longer exists. Um, so I got a lot of practice at trying to communicate with a lay audience, trying to communicate expert knowledge to a lay audience. Um, then I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, don't, I doubt you want to turn this into the story of Bob. So I'll, but I'll say I, uh, you know, worked in a number of magazines, started writing books. Uh, my first book was 1988. I haven't been very prolific uh, on the book front because this one is just my fifth and it's been a long time since 1988. Um, but I, I, I've usually had a, a, you know, a job as well in the, in the writing field or occasionally actually teaching at the college level. Cool. And then what, what interested you in Buddhism, at least approaching this book? Well, you know, in college, you know, you were supposed to kind of uh, be conversant in Eastern philosophy. That was kind of cool. So you would hear about Buddhism. Uh, I had been brought up uh, as a Christian, but was no longer a Christian. And, and so I'm sure was in some sense looking for something like a, a spiritual uh, practice or grounding. But my attempts to meditate never really amounted to much. I, I, I'm not a natural meditator. I have a very poor attention span. And I think various other parts of me make me uh, not well suited to the practice. So it, what it took was a week-long meditation retreat in 2003 at the Insight Meditation Society to convince me that I could do this. Uh, okay. And that actually did more than that. I had some, some pretty powerful experiences there. But, and, and just, you know, ended the retreat uh, in in such uh, proximity to bliss that I thought there's definitely something here. There's something to this, huh? <laughs> yeah. And, and I've been, I, I wouldn't say I've been entirely consistent in my practice since then, but since about 2009, that was my second retreat. And I, now I've gone on a number since then, uh, close to one a year since 2009. And my daily practice has, has, uh, has been pretty steady. Cool. So yeah, you, you talk about that in, in this book a little bit, the, the experience with the, with the retreat. Um, are the ones that you do once a year, more or less, are they, are they all similar? Do you keep going to the same place? Or? I have tended to go to IMS. Uh, this last spring, for the first time, I went to a different place. I went to the Garrison Institute in New York and did a retreat in the Shambhala tradition. It was not an official Shambhala Center retreat but it was with teachers who had studied under Trumka Rinpoche, who started the Shambhala movement, I gather. And uh, so that was a really interesting exposure. I mean, I'd never meditated with my eyes open, which they do. And, and it was just a different, it had some elements of Vipassana meditation and, you know, kind of meaning mindfulness more or less. Um, but it, but it, it, was, it was pretty different uh, from what I was used to. And it was, it was just very, very interesting. Cool. Okay. Um, and, and when did you create your course, The Buddhism and Modern Psychology? How long has that been out? You know, I guess it's been out now about, about three years. Uh, I, it was based on a seminar I taught at Princeton a couple of times. It was actually called uh, Science and Buddhism, but it was basically psychology and Buddhism uh, with particular emphasis on evolutionary psychology. And uh, turning a seminar into an online course was kind of challenging because I, I didn't have a, a, a prepared set of lectures. I'd never, I'd never taught it as a lecture course. So it really took some work, uh, but the people at Princeton were great and had just helping me, providing me with all the resources, video, you know, professional videography and, um, and, and, uh, and that was a lot of work, but very rewarding because I still, uh, even though I'm not personally on a very regular basis engaged in it, you know, it's now just kind of a course that's out there online for people to take. Uh, 
Um, I still get feedback from people who are taking it, and that's always very gratifying. Assuming it's good feedback, which it usually is, I guess the people who have bad feedback are polite enough not to share it with me. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I've heard a lot of good feedback about it from uh, circles that I run in and people who have taken your course had a lot of good things to say. Um, so I'm, I'm going to have to check out that course as well for, my, for myself. It's short. It's only really six lectures and most are no more than an hour. Cool. It's on, the, it's on the Coursera platform. Okay. So yeah, uh, anyone interested in that, you guys have to check out Buddhism and Modern Psychology on Coursera. Um, but what I am interested in talking about today specifically uh, is uh, Robert's new book, The Why Buddhism is True. Um, this is a book that I had the opportunity to read over the last couple of weeks, and uh, I'm really excited about this book. I was telling Robert a little earlier, the, a lot of the people who listen to my podcast are people who are disaffected from religion. Uh, they're secular-minded, not really interested in any kind of an ism, and yet uh, there's an interest in learning about the, the, psych, the psychology and the philosophy behind a lot of these Buddhist concepts like meditation and, and you know, they know that there's something to it. And um, this book fits in really well for that audience. You know, someone who just wants to understand the science of, uh, and the philosophy of meditation uh, of enlightenment. And that's, that's actually one of the, that's the tagline that that's on this book. Um, I'm curious about the title, why Buddhism is true. How did that come about? Well, I'm a little abashed about the title. The, uh, I mean, you know, it's obviously, uh, the good news is it will get people's attention. The bad news is some people will hate it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it just popped into my head uh, after writing the book. I didn't set out to write a book with that as the title. But I realized that I had tried in the course of the book to mount a defense of the fundamentals of Buddhist philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, I was I was arguing that it basically makes sense. Of course, there's lots of different Buddhist traditions, and, and this and you know, in terms of the kinds of skepticism you could have about the title, you could say, well, wait, there is no one Buddhism, which is kind of true. There's certainly a lot of different traditions, and and they differ in significant ways. Um, at the same time, there are some concepts that are pretty common to the major traditions. Uh, like the idea that the reason we suffer and the reason we make other people suffer is because we don't see the world clearly. And that this lack of clarity can in some ways uh, be divided into two parts. We, we don't see ourselves clearly. We have major misconceptions about what's inside our head. And then we have major misconceptions about what's out there. Um, you might say that those track roughly under the concepts of not self, the Buddhist concept of not self, and uh, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, respectively. It's a little, in some ways, more complicated than that, because sometimes uh, the concept of emptiness is taken to encompass the concept of not self. And, and in general, the concept of emptiness gets more emphasis in the Mahayana tradition. But I find that it's kind of there, if you talk to Theravadan meditators of of kind of tremendous accomplishment um, and adeptness, uh, you know, they, they have the apprehension of emptiness just the way someone meditating in the Mahayana tradition might. So, th so that's, anyway, I mean, I, I can understand, you know, I'm, 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 I'm prepared to accept a certain amount of blowback about the title. I, 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 I try to make clear both up front and a little note to the readers what I do and don't mean by it. Uh, and in an appendix to the book, you know, in elaborating what I hope uh, I've accomplished in the book. But um, it's a title I'm, I'm willing to, to stand by. Yeah, well, I, I liked the title. It piqued my interest when I first uh, saw the book and, and saw the title because, you know, I, I feel like the old me um, coming from a, a more uh, fundamental Christian view you know, it'd be like, why Buddhism is true, would immediately send off flags saying everything else must be false. Um, but having studied Buddhism now for, for so many years, approaching the title uh, from the Buddhist perspective, it didn't bother me at all. Because in fact, I was like, why Buddha, Buddhism is true? I thought, oh, I wonder what he means by true. And I was 
and that was it. And then as I read the book, uh, it was very clear to me that the intent was more along the lines of why Buddhism works, why meditation works, why these concepts ring true to people. Um, I, I, I think the title's great because it does get that discussion going on. Well, what is truth? At least from the Buddhist perspective, it's yeah. not necessarily the same as, you know, from other traditions. Well, I'm glad you approve. And, and along those lines, I actually added, I think you were originally sent the galleys and now the actual physical final book exists. And there's something I added in that note to readers in between those two. And it's that quote by the Dalai Lama. Uh, you know, you don't have to use Buddhism to become a better Buddhist. You can use it to become a better whatever you are. To emphasize that this is not incompatible by and large or it's certainly not inherently incompatible with other spiritual or philosophical traditions. It can supplement uh, whatever your governing philosophy or spirituality is. That's awesome. I'm happy to hear that because I don't know if you knew this, but that's the the tagline I use yeah. in every podcast episode. I, I have heard it. Yes, I, I, I've heard it <laughs> from you. Yeah. Yes. And, and I think it's, it, it's, it's a powerful sentiment. I'm, I'm glad that, that that's expressed in the book because it is true, you know, that, this stuff makes you a better whatever you already are. And that's definitely the vibe I got reading your book. Uh, it was almost like a, a, a manual explaining some of these concepts where I don't see how it would be off-putting to anyone from any other faith tradition. So if uh, you're listening to this podcast or, or watching this video, and that is a factor where you feel like, well, wait a second, I've got this other truth. This doesn't conflict with that uh, in any way. Um, so uh, there's a concept in, in your book that I, I wanted to talk about a little bit. Um, you, you, the way you talk about no self and, or not self and um, the research that, that you highlight in, in your book about the mental modules really resonated with me. Um, I find in, in the workshops that I teach, the concept of, of, of no self or not self, teaching that concept can be difficult because we run up against this idea of there's a self or there's a no self. And those are the two options, right? And, and the way it was presented in your book with the, with the mental modules expanded this view for me to, to realize, well, what we're, what we're saying with this teaching and what you highlight in this book is there's a lot of yous and there's the you that's you when you're hungry. There's the you that's you when you're mad. So this, it's like saying, well, which you are you? Because you're not any of those permanently. And I really like that. Um, so I wanted to talk about that a little bit. A little bit. Um, how, how was it for you first learning about this concept of, of not self or no self? And then walk me through that transition into the way you presented it in, in this book, because I think you did a fantastic job of explaining that. Okay. Um, you know, I encountered the doctrine of not self, long after encountering the modular model of the mind uh, that I'm now viewing the doctrine in terms of. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the modular model I encountered while researching my book on evolutionary psychology, The Moral Animal, which came out in 94, the doctrine of not self, I didn't explore seriously until I was actually preparing to teach the seminar at Princeton, which was no more than you know five, six years ago. I guess I had heard a talk or two about it at a meditation retreat at that point, but I hadn't tried to really look into it. And I hadn't read the Buddha's discourse on the nets, the, the not self, which is fascinating to me for a number of reasons. And one is that um, the way, the way he goes through explaining it is he says, well, look at the various parts of your mind. Does it make sense to think of them as you? You know, the, the different categories, the so-called five aggregates in, in Buddhist psychology, which includes feelings, perceptions, and so on. But the point is just that it's kind of an incremental approach to explaining the doctrine. It's like, is there any one part of your experience that it really makes sense to think of as you? And what I like about that is it makes it easier to connect an everyday meditation practice that even one in its early stages to the doctrine of not self. Because if you're even doing stress reduction or working on anxiety, then one thing you're kind of doing is looking at that feeling and experiencing it and, and asking yourself if you really have to identify with it. Do you really have to consider it part of you? And so you could see that as the first step toward 
potentially deeper meditative apprehensions that get you closer to the experience of not self. And in fact, in talking to people uh, like Joseph Goldstein, a co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, who, who have definitely gone a lot further meditatively than I have, uh, you know, you find out that, yeah, they, they at least, you know, Joseph, they, they think of it that way. You know, yeah, you, you start viewing your feelings in a different way, your thoughts in a different way, and you kind of slowly move toward not self. So it's not like you have to meditate for 10 years and hope that finally, suddenly you'll have this epiphany. You can kind of move toward an experiential apprehension of not self in, in an incremental way, which isn't to say there won't be dramatic thresholds along the way. But still, I think it's, it's good that we can connect a part of the practice that some people call therapeutic, and some people call it that derisively, right, because it's not spiritual. I think it's good that we actually can connect that to kind of the spiritual depths of Buddhist philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. Something I thought about when I was reading, reading the book, I thought, I wonder if anyone's ever had that moment of enlightenment watching the Snickers commercial where it says, you're not you when you're hungry. Um, because part of what you what you talk about in the book, you correlate how our feelings determine um, determine who we are in that moment. Um, so again, going back to Snickers, if you're not you when you're hungry, uh, then it's fair to say you're not you when you're not hungry either, because it just depends which you you are at the time. Are you the hungry you or the not hungry you? And then we take that and expand it into all the other feelings that we have throughout the day. And it's the, same, it's the same line of thought. You're not you when you're mad. You're not you when you're happy because you're not permanently either one right. of those. Um, and that was a, an aha moment I had reading your book thinking it's so simple. You're, none of, you're not any of those because you're not any of those permanently. Um, Which is an explicit part of the early Buddhist defense of the not-self doctrine. Mm -hmm. There just is not the persistence through time of any one you. Exactly. Yeah. I love the way you laid that out. Now, then you go on and you give a, a specific uh, example of, of one of the feelings. You have a section where you talk about um, jealousy. And I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to quote this the right way. Um, do you know if the page numbers will switch from? Uh, they will, they will switch. I can look. Do I have the physical um they, they won't be the same you so you have an index copy and, and a galleys or um uh, i'm not sure which one this is but it looks like chapter seven is called um i, I assume the chapter numbers won't change it's called the mental modules that run your life yeah i think that's where the jealousy thing is yes yep inside of that you've got a section that says jealousy tyrant of the mind right right now this section really spoke to me because I've, I've experienced this. I've gone through this and I've alluded to this story before in my podcast when I talk about my story, but going through and experiencing jealousy firsthand, having uh, like experienced um, emotional jealousy on the, on the heels of a betrayal. Um, a lot of what you described was like to a T what I felt. Right. And, and it was fascinating to read to this and think that wasn't me. You know, right. like, you were uh, transformed into a completely different person by a feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so uh, let's, let's just talk about that section for a bit, if, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, but the, the point that you're making in here, similar to what we've just, just been discussing is that the jealous you is, there's a module of the mind that can kick in and it overrides everything. Um, and you hear about this in, in courts, right? You know, uh, crimes of passion and, and the argument being made is that, well, that wasn't me. I, that was, I was going through an emotional state and, and that's when I did this or did that. Um, but what you're, what you're saying here, and it totally makes sense is that even if, okay, I don't go out and I murder someone while I'm experiencing this, but I may be making small, subtle choices that I wouldn't make if I weren't feeling what I was feeling, right? right. And if that's relevant to jealousy, which is a, a very easy one to identify with, I think most people have experienced that to some degree, um, then that's the case with every emotion and every feeling, right? right? 
Right. And, and so, I mean, a couple of things there. One is that, as you suggested, what the modular model says, the modular model of the mind says is that when you say, as you did, like, well, it's a different you when you're in this, it's a different you when you're hungry than in full, it's a different you when you're jealous. The modular model says that's more literally true than you might think. In other words, there are specialized parts of the mind that take turns running the show. And they were, according to evolutionary psychology, designed by natural selection for different purposes, in some cases at very different times. Some are older than others. And certainly jelly, jealousy um, is, a, uh, is thought by evolutionary psychologists to be a, like a very carefully you know, engineered module with a function. Uh, and, and so that's one thing is that this model says, yeah, there's really a lot of different use in there. They're often uh, operating at a subconscious level. Uh, sometimes you can sense the struggle between them, but sometimes maybe you're oblivious to it if there is any competition uh, between them for which one's going to govern consciousness. But in any event, it's usually the case that one or another of them is kind of running the show. The other, the other thing I'd say is like the feelings thing I think is key because jealousy is a very dramatic example of a feeling ushering in a new you. Mm -hmm. But I think much subtler feelings do it in a subtler way all the time. You know, like you'll see somebody you're kind of a rival with, that'll give you a little kind of feeling that will shape the, your perception of them and shape, shape the, the, the essence you project onto them. And that will govern how you interact with them. And you may notice that. And then there may be somebody that's kind of a frenemy and that'll be a subtler kind of feeling. But uh, in general, it's like these feelings that are ushering in different versions of us and one interesting thing about mindfulness meditation is it makes you more aware of feelings and it gives you more leverage over them in the sense of uh, being able, if you're aware of them, to sometimes choose not to blindly follow them. So if feelings are the things that usher in the different versions of you and mindfulness meditation gives you some leverage over feelings, well, then mindfulness meditation is a very powerful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you mentioned in this, in this very section that resistance isn't the mindful way of dealing with jealousy anyway. Now, and, you know, that would be applicable to any feeling. It's not that we're, we're trying to resist it or, or force a certain feeling. You know, uh, in Buddhist practice, we're, we're very aware of, of what we are clinging to, what we are striving uh, uh, what we're trying to feel right and what we're averse to, what we're trying to push away. Um, and that's something you highlight in this book that, you know, awareness is it's so key when it comes to these feelings, like you just highlighted that even small, subtle feelings at any given moment are influencing who you are in that moment. So rather than doing anything about it in terms of resisting or, or, or pushing away, we just want to be aware and, right. and recognize this is what I'm feeling. Why am I feeling this? Uh, and I think that uh, ties in so closely with mindfulness uh, as a whole. That's, that's why we do that. Right. And an interesting example of that is treating actual addiction. So I mentioned in the book that Judson Brewer, whom you may be aware of, he's, he's done a lot of work in this area. He's a very serious meditator himself. He's, he's now at the, uh, where is it that, that uh, John Kabat-Zinn's uh, research place is in, uh, Massachusetts, is it, uh, anyway, it's UMass, it's some, some outlet, it's UMass Med School, I think, but anyway, um, he did a study where uh, he looked at smokers and he had them, you know, rather than fight the urge, just sit there and observe the urge, you know, not smoke a cigarette, but, but not go, oh, you know, not, not, not try to distract themselves or do something else, just sit there and observe the urge. And he did an actual study involving like 88 subjects and found it to be uh, more effective than some standard uh, treatments for nicotine addiction. That, that slowly as they observed the urge to smoke, it lost its power. Isn't that fascinating? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I love that. I, lo I love all of this. Uh, something I wanted to talk about this uh, with this, there's, I think sometimes we have this impression that okay, I start to understand that it makes sense that there are different me's. I get that I have different feelings and I'm not the same me when I'm hungry versus not hungry, all that. I get that. But 
I, I have this sense of feeling like there is a me that's, that's capable of overriding all the others at any given time. You talk about this as the CEO and you specifically say, have a section where you say the CEO is MIA. And I love that. Let's talk about that for a minute. So talk to me a little bit about this idea of a CEO. Yeah. Um, well, the Buddhist doctrine of not self has been described various ways and interpreted various ways. One way it is sometimes put is that the doctrine denies that the conscious self is kind of running the show. It's that it's the doer of deeds and the thinker of thoughts. Uh, I mean, this is why you hear maybe on meditation retreats, a meditation teacher saying, you know, thoughts think themselves. If you really look carefully at them, you're not, you're not in charge of generating them. They're just passing by your consciousness. And uh, one trend in psychology over recent decades is to support this skepticism as to the actual power of the conscious self. The kind of old idea that the conscious self is the CEO, you're calling the shots, has uh, come under challenge from a variety of experimental findings. And, and that, that goes back several um, decades. Uh, and, you know, one, the, a model I like in preference to it is, of course, this modular model, which, by the way, can help explain why it might seem like thoughts think themselves. I mean, if, if modules are actually kind of injecting them into your field of consciousness, then the very careful observer of them, uh, you know, very adept meditator who's watching thoughts, would kind of see them as, as if they're thinking themselves. They're just kind of, you know, assuming form and passing away. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, 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 idea of that you are, you, the conscious you as the CEO, uh, has really fallen into disrepute in psychology for a lot of reasons. And, and that's one of various cases where, uh, just strikingly, I think modern science lends some corroboration to like millennia old Buddhist ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that section. The, the CEO is MIA. <laughs> um, uh, you have a quote in here. You talk about uh, observing, going back to the feelings real quick, observing feelings without attachment is the way you keep modules from seizing control of your consciousness. Um, and you talk about the paradox. Uh, I'd like to talk about this paradox a little bit about it's you know, the, the control aspect that you take control by not trying to take control. Mm -hmm. uh, Walk, walk us through that paradox a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it is paradoxical on two levels. I mean, first of all, there's that paradox uh, that surrendering control and becoming, in some sense, a mere observer of the process gives you more control. That seems ironic, but you can kind of see why it's the case, because if these feelings are running the show and, 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 and becoming so aware of them that you don't blindly follow their guidance, that you don't react to them in the way they're designed to make you react, um, you know, so it, that, it makes sense then. That just kind of sitting there watching them uh, takes power away from the feelings uh, and, and, and so gives more power to you. Now, the second paradox is more profound, and I'm not sure I can help us out of it, which is just like, what do we mean by you, right? If, if the self doesn't exist, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds of Buddhist philosophy, but in, the, in that discourse on the not-self, the five basic parts of kind of human experience uh, that are covered, and all of which the Buddha says are not part of the self, that includes consciousness is one of those. So consciousness, it says in there, is not the self. So that, that raises the question of, well, what, where, where do we find this you that, is in some, that in some sense has more power by virtue of meditation? And uh, I don't know that I have a, a confident answer to that question. I, I think there are people who are much further down the meditative path than I am who don't find it so puzzling. On the other hand, they have trouble articulating sometimes why they don't find it puzzling. Um, but, but I think, you know, it, it's one of many cases where, you know, as a practical matter, you don't have to get too caught up 
in, in, in uh, paradoxes that lie at the very roots, at the very depths of Buddhist philosophy and might become more relevant to you if you, you know, got somewhere near actual nirvana and awakening. For most of us, that's not a problem, right? For most of us, just living our lives is challenging. And, uh, and for those purposes, just think of there as being a you. And in fact, it is a Buddhist idea that in a, con in a so-called conventional sense, the self exists. In an ultimate sense, it doesn't. It's fine to live a lot of your life at the conventional level and talk of the self as existing. Sure. Yeah, I like that. Um, you mentioned uh, nirvana. This is one of the questions I had written down that I was curious about. What, what is nirvana for you? How do you define it? Well, <laughs> um, you know, it is, it is said to uh, be something that someone reaches at the point that they reach so-called awakening or enlightenment, uh, you know, which is an interesting feature of Buddhism that the two terms are synonymous. Uh, I mean, uh, or, or they, 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 uh, they write, at least these things arrive at the same time, that, that when you see the ultimate truth, you achieve ultimate happiness, bliss, right? Uh, and as there's a third part, which is that uh, if all goes according to plan, you should uh, be a much better person. So there's really three things that are asserted by traditional Buddhist philosophy that are said to coincide, which is truth about the world, happiness, and goodness. That's an amazing thing. That's an amazing claim. And I, I think there's a, a case to be made that indeed progress along those dimensions at least tends to uh, be correlated. Um, now, as for what nirvana is, I mean, first of all, it is said to be blissful. And, and I'm agnostic on the question of whether there are any people in the world right now who have truly attained enlightenment. It's a, that's a long debate. Um, or, or whether there have ever been. I mean, I don't know. The, the, uh, it depends on how you define it. Uh, I tend to have a pretty strict definition of it that would make it hard for people to accurately claim they've attained enlightenment, but different people have different views. But nirvana itself, uh, well, here's an interesting thing about it is that in the Buddhist text, it is sometimes <clears throat> uh, characterized with this word, the unconditioned. And the unconditioned in, you know, in Buddhist terms kind of means more or less the uncaused not subject to the kinds of causes that normally push and pull us. And that's a really fascinating thing because it gets back to what we were saying. I mean, if indeed feelings are the buttons that get pushed on us, that manipulate us, right, and get us to do certain things unthinkingly, reactively, and, medita and mindfulness meditation by making you aware of your feelings gives you uh, the option of kind of removing yourself from those levers, then you are in a sense liberating yourself from the causes that normally impinge on you, right? You're, mm -hmm. Now, I don't think the way I think of the world, it's not possible to completely remove yourself from all causation, right? I. I uh, I, I can't imagine that. At the same time, uh, although, I mean, I think the Buddhist claim is that that nirvana involves that. Uh, but, but that aside, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes, makes sense to think of meditative progress as moving you toward the unconditioned because it is making you less kind of mindlessly enslaved by causality as it normally operates in a human being. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that, that's one thing that's uh, interesting to me about Nirvana. And when I, the chapter on Nirvana was, uh, was helped a lot by my, uh, well, both reading what Bhikkhu Bodhi has said about it and, uh, and, and, and getting feedback from him by email on uh, how I was interpreting it. He was really, he was really great. He's a really, really important American translator of Buddhist texts. Sure. Yeah, one thing I love about Buddhism with its paradoxes um, is uh, the thing that you want is the very problem, right? <laughs> uh, I, I talked about this on a, at a presentation on Sunday, uh, how spiritual journeys, a, a spiritual journey from the Buddhist perspective, 
uh, you know, on a typical journey, the journey is from point A to point B, whatever point A is and wherever point B is. And th so th there's a goal that you could say the goal is to get from point A to point B. Now on the Buddhist path, you could say that it's similar in the sense that point A is there's suffering, point B is you reach this place where there's no suffering. And rather than think of, thinking of these place as uh, places, these are more like mental states. Um, and yet the paradox in this would be, uh, if I'm not at point B, wherever I am, I, and I see there's point B and I'm trying to get there, that's the very source of my suffering is that I'm here and I'm not there and I wanna be there. Uh, and that's where this paradox comes in is the moment I can accept, well, this is where I am and I don't wanna be anywhere else. This is just where I am. Ironically, that's when you get to point B, not because you wanted to get there, but because you're, you've made where you are point mm -hmm. B. Now, uh, correlating that paradox with what you're talking about with the feelings and how we just observe them, to me, that, that comes across as it's similar in the sense that I feel this. I don't want to feel this. I want to feel that. Right. Well, that's now I'm caught in the right. very problem. Right. Yeah. And, and that's so that's why I, I love the title, like why Buddhism is true. Correlating it to this whole line of thinking is it's saying this is what's true, that when you are completely content with where you are, when nothing needs to be any different than how it is. Mm -hmm. ironically that's that's it that's when you found the very thing that you're looking for which is that nirvana or that you know radical right. acceptance it is ironic that you start out by saying i'd like to be happier i'd like to be enduringly happy mm -hmm. and I, that's the way i'd like to feel and the answer is well then quit caring about the way you feel <laughs> exactly. it, it seems paradoxical but that's at the very core of buddhist practice is mm -hmm. to is to quit yearning for things to be different than they are. Mm -hmm. to, to, and, and that's what is involved. That's what it means to quit trying to kind of run away from unpleasant feelings and to quit trying to cling to pleasant feelings. Mm -hmm. um, it's, and it's, it's paradoxical, but, but that doesn't mean it, it, it doesn't work. You know, mm -hmm. it seems to work. That, yeah. I, I don't want to minimize the challenge though. You know, it's, Absolutely. it's, there are people who say that they've attained spontaneous awakening and never had to meditate, don't meditate. I envy them. I think for most of us, it takes real commitment, which is hard, you know, to get, get on the cushion every day. Uh, mm -hmm. And, um, but that it pays real dividends. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's funny. I have a friend who has told me before that they, I want to learn to be more patient. And there's almost a sense of frustration in the process because it's like, I want to be patient now. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the irony of it is that's the very reason you can't, right? Yeah. <laughs> you can't want it now. <laughs> but I think about that a lot with, with Buddhism in general, with enlightenment, the, the idea of enlightenment in Buddhism, the science of enlightenment, all of this that, you know, that's talked about here is, uh, and you mentioned this in the book that, I, that's the, the huge irony in all this is that when you can sit there and watch these modules, you don't have to control them. That's the only time you actually have a sense of some control over them. And, and, and that's still the irony because you don't have control over them. And I love that paradox. That is yeah, yeah but just to not have them controlling you is progress in itself, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Now, yeah, you know, it's full of paradox. Life is full of paradox. Quantum physics is full of paradox. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> reality seems to involve paradox. Yeah. Well, I think that's an important distinction that you just made. You know, the, there's the way our feelings and emotions control us. And, f and what if our goal was just to not let them control us mm -hmm. rather than thinking, you know, the, the duality. We're always in this dualistic mindset. I don't want them to control me. Therefore, I must control them. And, and the, the truth is you, you, you can't get to that point, but you can get to the point where they don't control you. The reactivity goes away. And that's really what we're mm -hmm. after, right? That the freedom from, from our habitual reactivity. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the book in, in general as on a whole. Why is this book important right now? Um, it's a good question. Uh, well, I hope, first of all, as a practical matter, that it does serve as a good introduction for people who are not that conversant in Buddhism and maybe haven't even meditated. Um, 
but I, um, I mean, one of the blurbs I'm proudest of is uh, Sharon Salzberg was very nice and uh, said something like, that. the book is of value both to experienced meditators and to people who are wondering what the fuss is all about, who have never meditated. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I like to think that it does work at both of those levels. It, it's, um, I, I don't, I don't know because uh, I can't, I, I just can't be a naive reader of it, but I hope that's true. But leaving that aside, I mean, leaving aside uh, what I hope it will be by way of a resource to people. Mm -hmm. um, what I was trying to do was, uh, you know, argue that in fundamental ways, I mean, you know, you hear that, well, meditation is being validated by science. And what people usually mean by that is, well, they did a study showing that meditation relaxes people. Mm -hmm. That's good, but that's, I, I think a deeper validation is possible. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was trying to achieve is to argue that science actually uh, corroborates not just the practical value of meditation, but the philosophical uh, foundation of Buddhist meditation, in particular mindfulness meditation, and, and, and kind of the Buddhist psychology implicit in all that. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, that's what I hope to do. And, and I did it by reference to not just psychology, although a, lo a lot of, you know, I, I talk about various things, brain skin studies and various experiments in psychology, but I also put particular emphasis on evolutionary psychology um, because I'm a longstanding fan of that. I've written about it. I, I, I think it's, I think it is itself a very valid framing of psychology broadly. I mean, if you believe that natural selection created the mind, it, it kind of has to, you know, evolutionary psychology construed somehow has to have some relevance to uh, the way our minds are, right? And so, um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I hope that I, that I brought something of value by bringing my prior conversancy in evolutionary psychology to, uh, you know, Buddhist philosophy and to meditative practice. And I think here it's, it's maybe a good thing that I'm not a better meditator than I am. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I started, you know, in, I was in middle age, you know, so it, it's, and, and I was already, I guess, thinking that I might write about this. So I was kind of observing um, the process from the point of view of a beginner and thinking all along, like, how would you explain this um, to people? So uh, I, and I make, you know, fairly considerable use of my own experiences, especially on retreat where, where, you know, you tend to have the most dramatic experiences. Um, and so I hope there's uh, something distinctive there, uh, you know, in that combination of things, kind of evolutionary psychology, Buddhist philosophy and psychology, and my own experience meditatively. Great. Do you happen to have a, a, a favorite, uh, concept or, or topic that you discussed in this book? You mean favorite in the sense that I'm proudest of what I did with it or, 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 or I like the way it reads most or? Uh, in the sense of, uh, uh, I guess, a, a section that you feel is um, really rings true, like th through experiential knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk about Buddhism as a whole, you know, why Buddhism is true. Is there something specific that has stood out to you that you presented in this book where you're like, this is this right here rings true to me. Well, a couple of things I would say in terms of the distinctive light that an evolutionary uh, perspective can shed. Uh, I think the argument I tried to make about so-called emptiness, you know, the idea that the things you perceive out there actually don't have the essence that we tend to project on them. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, I, I'm, I'm proud of that, uh, and I hope people will take the uh, the argument seriously. Um, but and but that's not the most user friendly part. It's the reason I kind of saved it for later parts of the book. It's it's uh, uh, and I would say, um, in a way, one of the more user friendly parts is something I already said. Just appreciating 
that um, a, a fairly modest meditative practice, however halting and incremental your progress may seem, and however therapeutic it may seem in its aims, uh, just to make you a little less stressed out or whatever, um, is kind of continuously and naturally connected to uh, more thoroughgoing meditative attainments and to the, the depths of Buddhist philosophy. Um, I, I hope, uh, you know, I hope people take seriously the claim that our everyday way of looking at the world is deeply misleading because I think that has moral consequence. You know, that it, it it's what starts wars. It, 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 uh, it's what I think is responsible for the political polarization in the United States today. It's that everyone thinks their view of the world is the actual true view, mm -hmm. but actually our minds were designed by natural selection to mislead us. That's not always. I mean, there are a lot of things we see very clearly. You want to see the wall so you don't bump into it and so on. But especially when it comes to like our rightness, our rectitude and, and the, uh, the contrasting uh, rectitude of, of, of whatever tribe we identify as the enemy, there our minds are systematically misleading us. Mm -hmm. And um, I think both making progress on both the not self and the emptiness front uh, will help us make progress in, in fighting these problems, political polarization, sectarian strife, and so on. So, I mean, if you ask me what I hope, will come out of the book. My hope is that it'll, 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 uh, it'll help things at that pragmatic level. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree more with you on that, on that assessment. Uh, that's the vibe I got reading this book. It felt like this is something everyone needs to read. Uh, you know, I've, I've always thought uh, every couple when they get married should be required to go mandatory uh, relationship coaching or <laughs> you know, something to that effect. Um, and I feel like every, every person going out into the world uh, as an adult uh, should have some kind of mindfulness skills. And I felt like this book gives you the foundation. You know, why, why would I, I've heard of this mindfulness stuff. What is it? Why would I even want it? This is the kind of book that's like, ah, okay, it makes sense. It makes sense how it works, why it works. And now I want to practice it. That's the, the feeling I got from it. And, um, you know, I, I'm always recommending books. I have a list of probably 40 or 50 books on my website on secularbuddhism.com forward slash books where I, uh, these are my recommended books. Uh, but I mean this when I say this, that I feel like your book is, is now among the top of the list for me to make sure people read to understand, hey, this is why this stuff works. This is why we practice this stuff. Um, and, and I'm going to encourage everyone to read it. And I, I'm very happy that you wrote it. I'm very happy with the way that you wrote it because I think it speaks to people who, uh, like me, are secular-minded, who aren't interested in anything that, that, that feels dogmatic in any way. And, and the way you've presented it, I think, is just fantastic. And it, it speaks uh, to that audience. So thank you for, for contributing and, and writing this uh, at a time when the world could benefit greatly from this book. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot coming from you. As I told you before we started recording, uh, you know, I've been aware of your podcast for a long time, very impressed by it and impressed by the way you, you kind of do it by yourself. I mean, it's just kind of you uh, talking and that, that's a hard thing to do. Uh, but, but for that reason, you know, months ago when the book was coming out, I thought, well, I guess that's one place that, uh, I, I won't see myself talking about the book because he doesn't have guests. Uh, and so I'm glad that uh, <laughs> just at, at what is, from my, from my point of view, the perfect time, uh, you're branching out a little. Yeah. I, I really feel lucky. And I'm, I'm really, really grateful for, for uh, what you said about the book and, and really gratified that you have that view. Well, thank you. Do you have a, a specific place where you would want people to, to go look for this? Is Amazon the best place or... Um, you know, any links, uh, I'll put them on the, on the website and in, um, in this specific episode. There is, I guess if they want to kind of check it out a little uh, before buying, there is whybuddhismistrue.net, which features, you know, kind of just the first few paragraphs of every chapter. And, 
so you could you could you could kind of check it out a little there. Although these days Amazon lets you kind of browse a book a little, so it, it's you know um, you can do it there too. I, I don't particularly have a preference. Some people want to support independent bookstores, uh, and that's a that's a great thing too because they're a great institution. Cool. Okay. Well, uh, I'll be posting links to, to different places. Um, but if, if any of you listening or watching this are interested in the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment written from a perspective that, um, is, is very open to, um, you know, the, the, what I highlight in the podcast, what the Dalai Lama says, you know, do not try to use what you learn from Buddhism to be a Buddhist, use it to be a better, whatever you already are. Mm -hmm. That journey starts with this book. In my opinion, this is a great place oh, to thank start you so much. Uh, the concepts are, are very clear. Um, I think my favorite part of the book, if I just want to share uh, my thing was the, the whole topic of, of not self, the way you present and correlate that with the mental modules made so much sense to me. Um, I love your analogy of the red pill at the beginning of the book with the matrix. From the movie, the matrix. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because that's a lot. That really is what this is like, right? Real Realizing you're living in the matrix. Uh-huh. Uh, you talked about this. There's what you see isn't what you think it is. If you want to see what it is, here's the red pill. <laughs> uh, I love that. Um, but thank you very much for, for your time, for being on the show. I'm, I'm excited and honored that you are the first uh, guest that I've had that's uh, in this new interview format. Well, I'm, ex format. I'm excited and honored by the exact same thing. Well, thanks. And I'll be doing this um, more often, maybe once a month, a format like this. I'd love to maybe reconnect at some point in the future and see how the book is doing or what other projects you have in the works. Um, for now, I think this is kind of the main focus but I'd love to see what you, what you come up with down the road and, and have you back on, on the podcast. Absolutely. So. I'll be here. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. Do you have anything else that you would want to add? Any closing thoughts or anything? Um, I don't think so. I would just say try it. And if you've tried meditation and it's never worked, try a meditation retreat. You know, do research uh find out where you're going and and have reason to think that the teachers are good and that's what you want but but th without a retreat i don't think i ever would have gotten into this stuff that's really good to hear uh, because i do I, I get that a lot uh, hearing from people like I'm, I, li I like this and i tried it and i meditated a few days but this is really hard to you know i always say med meditation is easy meditating is hard uh, doing it is the hard part I love the idea of a retreat, which remind us which one you went to. I've done most of mine at the Insight Meditation Society, which is in rural Massachusetts. It's one of the places where Vipassana meditation, which is, you know, not exactly the same as mindfulness meditation, but involves it, um, entered the United States. It was, it was an important institution uh, co-founded uh, by, by Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Kornfield, who, who himself uh, went, went, went out and founded Spirit Rock in the West. Cool. Okay. And I'll post links to, um, uh, to some of these places that we're talking about in the, in the podcast as well. Uh, and on the website. Okay. Um, well, thank you very much. This, this has been a really fun experience. I, you know, I've been a little reluctant since I started the podcast about when and how to do the interviews. And I've had a few authors reach out to me uh, already with, with books um, yours is the first one where I thought, oh, I'll give it a try. Um, and, and I started reading it. As soon as I started reading it, I was like, okay, this is the type of author I want to interview. Cause it's so great to hear. So the really title cool. worked with you at least got you to yeah, open the it, book. Well, had I been browsing the, you know, the halls of a bookstore and came across it, I would have looked at it and thought, huh? Because I, I, I think again, from the Buddhist perspective, I would have seen the, uh, just the interesting correlation of Buddhism and true in, in the same sentence. And I would have been like, well, what, what do they mean? And I would have read it. And then uh, the way the book is designed now, I love the, um, the comments you have on the back, Martin Seligman, Sharon Salzberg, Jonathan Gold. I mean, those are great. I, I would have read the back and I would have said, okay, this is a book I'll, I'll, I'll pick okay. up and give it a try. So the title would have caught my interest. And then looking at it a little more closely would have been enough to say, yeah, I'll, I'll read this. 
And then reading it makes it so I, I, I would tell anyone about it now. <laughs> so good job on the book. That's so good to hear. All right. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure having you on. Same here, Noah. All right. Take care. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye. All right. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please share it with others. Write a review or give it a rating in iTunes. Check out Robert's new book by visiting secularbuddhism.com forward slash true. If you would like to make a donation to support the work I'm doing with this podcast, please visit secularbuddhism.com. That's all I have for now, but I look forward to recording another podcast episode soon. Until next time. Thank you.